You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. All right, Haggai, I'm out of breath over there playing like that. Man. Haggai chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Haggai 2. And again, it is uh, just left of Matthew a little bit. So as you look for it, go to the New Testament, turn to Matthew, and then go back to the left a little ways between uh, Zephaniah and Zechariah. The book of Haggai, chapter 2, this will be our, our third message in this book. And once you find it, let's stand together. Honor the reading of the scripture, out of respect to God's word, Haggai chapter 2. And, uh, you know, when we first started this, um, the seed thought was kind of planted from another message I heard. And then I started thinking about the whole, the whole book. Um, the, whole, the whole book really is about God's people trying to, if we could turn it down just a little bit for the mic, uh, God's people in, in reprioritizing God's house. Because for a long time, in the context of this story, this book, They had set God's house aside. Their attention to God's house had been set aside. And Haggai is the prophet coming to tell them it's time to reprioritize. It's time to put God's house back at the top of our priority list. Because they'd let it sit far too long unattended. So that's the context of the book. And we've looked at a couple messages already. But today we're going to begin reading in verse 10. Haggai chapter 2 verse 10. It says, in the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? Sounds like a strange question. The priests answered, we'll explain it a little bit. The priests answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priests answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you consider from this day and upward from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days were, when, they, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the press fat for to draw out 50 vessels out of the press, there were but 20. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you turn not to me, saith the Lord. Clear as mud? Maybe a little bit. I mean, there are some things here, though, that I think are good lessons for us, especially coming out of a season when we weren't able to make God's house the kind of priority that it needs to be. And we go through we went through a season. It's okay, but our, we have to be sure that coming through a season like we've just been through doesn't affect our mindset toward the importance of this place. And that's what we're talking about this morning. I'm calling it holiness and the house of God. Holiness in the house of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that you'd help it to uh, be what we focus on. I pray that it would receive the attention it deserves. 
Lord, any other distractions, I pray that you would help those to, uh, to not take our focus off what it needs to be, and that is your word. We want to be spoken to. We want to be changed. Again, help our attention to be where it needs to be, and I pray that you would speak with your Holy Spirit through your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As I've already mentioned, one of the things in the last few months that that they've taught me is how quickly I can grow tired of certain phrases. And uh, if I hear the phrase new normal again, I might pull my hair out. If I hear uh, the phrase flatten the curve, that has grown pretty old uh, pretty quickly. The one I'm I'm ready to retire forever, though, is social distancing. Not that I don't think it's, it's, it's a helpful idea. I'm just tired of the phrase. Just need to come up with something new. I, I knew it had run its course when my seven-year-old a few weeks ago um, said we were going somewhere, and he said we need to be sure to practice safe social distancing. My seven-year-old. Like, okay, it is far too inundated in our culture. Now, and as much as I'm ready to see the phrase maybe be used less, I do understand why people are using it. Because of all the facts that are being debated, and there are a lot of things being debated about all of this right now, one seems universally agreed upon, and that is that the coronavirus is extremely contagious. That's the one thing that has become obvious and apparent in all of this. It's about the only thing that everybody sees eye to eye on about it, but it's true. And yet, I'm sure there may be somebody right now texting me a link to a story that talks about how the coronavirus is not very contagious. So I'll I'll enjoy that when I get back to my office. You know, the generally accepted reason for six feet apart, and there are people in the medical field in this room even right now that would be able to explain it better than I can, but the six feet thing is because the virus is spread from person to person through respiratory droplets from coughs and sneezes. That's what they say. And that's all, honestly, I could think about as I flew home from Idaho in March. Let me tell you why. Because I was coming back from a choir clinic. I had done a choir clinic for uh, Tim Knutson's church up there in Jerome, Idaho. And many of you know the Knutson family. And by the way, keep the Knutson family in your prayer. Because I heard uh, Brother Knutson Sr., John, uh, recently passed away. And so we're going to keep them in our prayer. They have a connection to our church here. And uh, we'll just make sure that we're praying for them. But Brother Knutson, I was there um, for a week, uh, about a week, a little bit less than a week, and did a choir clinic, and everything was fine. But that week was the week that President Trump declared the national state of emergency. And I think that was official on a Friday, and I was flying back on the next, the next day, on Saturday. I was flying to Boise, from Boise to Sioux Falls, and I had a layover in Denver in between. So, of course, everybody's on edge. You could just sense the tension because we don't know what this is going to turn, in, turn into. You, you don't know how bad it's going to be, and, and you're just worried, and my, my kids were at home, and I was just thinking about them. And so I got on the plane, and everyone's on edge, and, and imagine then my anxiety levels increasing when a little five- or six-year-old boy came and sat behind me on the plane. That's not the problem. Okay? I've, I've flown with kids plenty and gotten plenty of dirty looks as I walked down the center aisle. Um, but what, what, what caused anxiety for me is that he got in the seat behind me, then stood up on the seat and leaned over my chair and started coughing violently. And if you've ever sat in an airplane seat, you know there's not six feet between you and someone two rows away from you, much less the row right behind you. So this little boy started coughing, 
Bless his heart. That's what you're supposed to say in situations like this. He started coughing and he did the entire plane trip from Boise to Denver. And to make it all worse, when it first started, he was leaning over the seat and he coughed so directly on me that my hair moved from the force of the air. I was imagining, you know, this fancy camera that was showing all the droplets floating all over me. My mind was racing. It was the longest hour and 45 minutes of my life. I'll just tell you, say that. Now listen, I'm not trying to downplay the disease. I'm not. My point is, no matter what you think about it, it's contagious. It has been proven to spread. It's a communicable disease. And that's why we're being told to practice social distancing. And as contagious and dangerous as it might be, Haggai deals with something far more dangerous in the lives of God's people here in chapter 2 because he addresses their sin. And you find out that unholiness is also contagious. See, Haggai, is a, this is a book of four messages delivered by the prophet Haggai. And one unique characteristic of the book is each sermon that he gives is given a specific date. And it's important because when you examine the historical context of those dates and you you understand what was happening at that time in history, you realize these, that he was preaching to the circumstances that they were dealing with in that moment. It really does give extra force to the message that he's preaching when you know what's going on. This message was delivered on December 18th, 520 BC, just two months after the message that he had preached previously in this chapter that we dealt with on Mother's Day, despise not the day of small things, or who hath despised the day of small things. That message was preached right after, a few weeks after they started relaying the foundation, repairing the foundation of this temple. This is the new temple. It's not the same as Solomon's temple. And that first message in chapter 2 was Haggai coming to them and encouraging them that just because the temple looks smaller, it doesn't mean that it's less important because it is God that makes it matter. That was the message. Despise not the day of small things. That's what he was trying to tell them. Well, this now, this is a few months after that message, and they've been working for a little bit, actually to the point that the foundation is now completed. We know that based on history, by studying some dates there. This is about two months after they'd begun the work, and it's done. And I'm sure then, in their minds, they're rejoicing that the foundation is finished. In their minds, once they get done with that first part, because we all know the foundation of a building is the most important part of the building. And so they finish the foundation, it's looking good, and they think, in their minds, I really believe, they're thinking, God is good with us. Everything's back to normal. We've got the foundation done. We're going to move ahead. But then a message comes from Haggai. And God's message comes as a reminder that there's another important element of the work that they have to deal with. You see, it's not just about a building. As important as a building is, a building is not all that is involved in God's work, in God's house. God's house is made up of people. And God's building can look great, but if God's people are not what they're supposed to be, then there's a big problem. And that's what, the, that's what he's dealing with. So God, through Haggai, deals with the condition then of the people. And he asks two questions in which the priests answer. They give two answers. Look at verses 10 through 12. This is question one. So on the fourth and 20th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, Here's the question. 
If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, shall it be holy? So when, he, when God says holy flesh, he's referring to the flesh of the animal sacrifices that they would bring to God as an offering. So the temple worship had been going, the altar had been built, they were bringing sacrifices, and these sacrifices were animals that they would kill before God and usually burn on an altar for him, and a sacrifice was made to God. Once it was placed on that altar, it was for God, it was sanctified, it was holy, it wasn't for anybody else at that point, it was for the Lord, set apart for God. The priests that oversaw the sacrifices they would have to do something with the carcass, with the body of the animal that was left on the, on the altar. They would then, at times, they would either burn them or they would just uh, cut them open to bleed and die as, a, as an offering. I know it's different than what we imagine worship being, but that's the way it worked in the Old Testament. So they would then take the body or the remains and they would put it in the lap of their garment or in a cloth and they would carry it off. Now, Levi 620, Leviticus 6.27 says... Whatsoever shall touch the flesh, thereof shall be holy. So I don't know how it works. It means, though, that whatever or whoever then would touch that carcass, would touch that dead animal that had been offered to God, would then be viewed as holy or clean in God's sight. And again, I can't tell you how it works. I don't know how all that works. Um, The Old Testament operated by ceremony, and it operated by picture, looking ahead to what Jesus Christ would do for a sinner someday for good. And all, I'm just thankful that we don't have to bring animals to an altar right here and kill them and sacrifice them to God. And, and we have Jesus Christ who was offered once for all as the only sacrifice we'll ever need. Be thankful for that. It's permanent. It's done. I'm grateful. Well, that's not how it worked back then. It was more ceremonial, more picture, picturing Christ. But the question posed is, if the priest's garment... So again, you take an offering, and a sacrifice, and once it's killed on the altar, you take the offering, and the priest would maybe put it in the lap of his garment, the lap of his garment, or in a pocket, or in a cloth, and he would carry it off someplace else. So now that cloth that he carried the animal in, it's holy, it's clean before God. So what? What? So they understand the question, but the question posed by Haggai is this: If the priest's garment that garment that is now considered holy. If that garment then, if he takes the animal and he puts it somewhere else, now the garment is holy. If he goes and, and he picks up a piece of bread and that piece of bread touches his garment, is the bread now holy? Or if he picks up a piece of meat and the meat touches his garment, is the meat holy? Or if it touches pottage or soup, is it holy? Anything that that garment touches Since it's holy, does that mean everything it touches is holy? Can a garment that's been made holy transfer holiness to something else? And they very clearly know the answer in in verse 12. And they say that priests answered, after asking the question, the priests answered and said, no. There's not a transference of holiness. And this is an interesting parallel when you think about something like disease. Consider holiness compared to good health, for instance. If you're healthy, if everybody in this room is healthy today and somebody comes in that is sick, we're hoping that doesn't happen. We're trying to take precautions. You be responsible. Make sure it doesn't. But if someone does come in and they're sick, we don't all make them healthy simply because they walked into a room full of healthy people. They don't just come in and by transference or or osmosis, we give them health. 
No, that's not how it works. It's not transferable. Holiness is not communicable in that way. And in the same way, holiness doesn't just happen naturally. Holiness is not one of those things that spreads by accident. It doesn't, it takes desire, it takes discipline, it takes effort, and it takes sacrifice, and it takes time with God to be holy. It takes effort. You don't simply just become holy because you're around people that are holy. It doesn't wear, rub off on you or wear off on you. Being around godly people, can it help you want to be more godly? Absolutely it can. But you make the choice to be holy by making your relationship with God a priority in your life. So 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, let me just read these. It says, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And he makes it very clear there. Peter starts that thought process and says, holiness starts with obedient children. Holiness starts by us, as members of God's family, obeying what God has told us to do as obedient children. It's not some attainable, unattainable magic trait. It's not something that we, have to, uh, that we have to work all of our life to get to. It's not like I have to be saved for 30 years before I can experience holiness. No, do you realize if you're a child of God and the Holy Spirit resides in you, you have the power through His help and through His Word to live a holy life simply because you choose to be an obedient child of his. You don't have to wait till somebody transfers holiness to you. Holiness begins with the choice to be obedient, as obedient children, he says. He says, then as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. And that, that, that phrase, not fashioning, it means the same thing as be not conformed in Romans 12 too. And that word is a mold, to fit to a mold and that's what he's talking about. It means that we shouldn't put ourselves into the mold of that resembles our old lives. And folks, it is important that we, we are careful not to just gravitate back to the default setting of our own lives. Because it's easy to do. The life of a child of God shouldn't resemble our former lives. And some of you that weren't raised in church, you know what the former life was like. And you say, bless God, that is not a life you want to live. Absolutely. Those of us who are raised in church, sometimes I think we may not sense the urgency of why we need holiness because we don't maybe know what it was like to live the kind of life that some right even here in this room have had to endure to make them the people they are today. But he says we should choose to be obedient, not fashioning ourselves according to that former mold in our lives. Listen, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, it should change everything. That's why Peter said in verse 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. You know, that word conversation is not having a conversation. That word conversation means your lifestyle. It means your behavior. And it means that holiness permeates, should, in a child of God, holiness should permeate every single area of the way a child of God lives. According to Peter, holiness makes a difference in everything. And this sounds like a, young, a teenager message, but I'm just going to say it because we do have some young people, but we've got some older folks too, and it applies to everybody. But listen, our music should sound different than the old mold. The stuff that we listen to, it should be different than what we used to listen to. Our clothes should look different than the clothes of the old mold. Our vocabulary should sound different 
than the way we used to talk. Our circle of friends should shift. And I'm not saying you cut people off, but listen, if you get saved and friends are not saved, and if the Holy Spirit resides in you, you shouldn't feel very comfortable to be around them if they're not living right. The places we frequent, they should shift. They should change. The movies we watch, the things we take in, the conversations we have, the innuendos that we used to say, they shouldn't be part of our vocabulary anymore. Christians should be far away from the old mold of life that we used to live. Our attitudes should be different. Our responses should not be the same. Listen, holiness means that everything in our lives is other than the way that it used to be before we were saved. That old way of living, it should be a distant memory. If we don't have enough motive for holiness, verse 16 there in 1 Peter 1 says, be, because it's written, be holy for I am holy. And as if there's not enough reason for us to choose to be holy, you have a father who sent a son to die on a cross for your sins. And if there's not any better reason for you to be holy, it's that your father loves you that much. Following God means we're part of the family. And if our father who made provision on a cross for us to be saved through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, if he is holy, then I ought to strive to be holy too. And he's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. He deserves holy, holy, holy followers. But it's not a magic pill. It's not something you just go do. You just go be holy. No, you have to make a choice every day to be obedient to God. You step away from that old way of living and you follow the Father those are the roots of holiness. And listen, I'm telling you today, holiness doesn't happen because you were raised in church. There's a lot of people that you talk to out there and they say, well, I was raised in church or my grandfather was a pastor or I went to a Christian school and this and that. And they have all of these, this long list of externals. But the Apostle Paul did too, if you read Philippians 3. And a religious background did not transfer holiness to the Apostle Paul and it will not transfer holiness to you. Holiness only comes through you as a sinner acknowledging your sin before Christ and the shed blood of Jesus Christ being applied to your account, just thus cleansing you from your sin and reconciling you to God the Father. You cannot be holy unless it starts with that step today. And there may be somebody in this room and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and you want to be holy or you want to get, live a good life or you want to take a step up in your Christianity. But until you receive Christ as your Savior and His blood cleanses you from all sin, you can't even begin to begin the process of becoming holy before God. It's where it all starts. Holiness doesn't come if you've raised in a Christian family. Holiness doesn't come if you have outward works. Holiness is not contagious. It doesn't happen passively. It doesn't happen accidentally. It's a choice we make to obey. Christ and, and, and follow God, if we obey and follow in his holy footsteps, that's where it begins. And I'm thankful. Listen, I'm thankful. Even though holiness isn't contagious, we should be thankful it's possible. It doesn't happen by accident, but it can happen in your life if you choose. So then Haggai moves on to question two. And he says, basically, the question in verse 13 is, then said Haggai, if one that is unclean. So he says, okay, we know holiness is not transferable. Holiness is not contagious. But he says, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? So he says, okay, so if holiness doesn't transfer, does unholiness, does uncleanness? Well, we know that touching a dead body, according to the Old Testament law, was considered extremely unclean. 
Uh, Numbers 19.11 says, He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. A few verses later in Numbers 19, he said, And whatsoever the unclean person toucheth shall be unclean, and the soul that toucheth it shall be unclean until even. So that seems like pretty, a pretty obvious answer. The answer to this question would be different than the answer to the first question. They say at the end of verse 13, And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. So holiness doesn't transfer. If I have a holy garment and I touch something else, it does not transfer holiness. But if I touch a dead body and I touch someone else or I touch something else, that does transfer. Unholiness is contagious. Holiness is not, but unholiness is. It's contagious. Compare this to health again. If a sick person walks into a room full of healthy people They won't become healthy by being around all the other healthy people, but that one unhealthy person can potentially spread a disease to everybody in the room simply by talking or sneezing or coughing. Listen, unholiness, disease, it happens passively. And folks, I just want to give you this message. You don't hear holiness preached very much. Listen, if we do nothing to strive for holiness in our Christian's life, we will be unholy. Our default position is unholiness. If we do nothing to, to fight the sin in our lives, it's the position we were in, according to Peter, by ignorance. We followed it according to the, our lusts, our former lusts. When we didn't know better, we were unholy. We operated by unclean lusts. We tend towards sin. And I know it's not a popular take, and I don't want to offend anybody this morning, but all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have a sin nature in us. There's none righteous, no, not one, except that Jesus Christ has made us righteous through his death. Otherwise, there's no, none righteous. We, are not, we have a sin nature from the time we're born, yes, till the time we die. And really, that sin nature is probably there from the time we're conceived, In sin, my mother did conceive me, the Bible says. We have a sin nature our whole lives, and it will always be there. It will always be looking over our shoulder. It will always be pulling us toward unholiness. Holiness is not contagious, but unholiness is. And unless we choose to obey toward holiness, we will be full of sin. I know that's not popular, but that's the basis of Haggai's message. And when you just preach through the Bible, sometimes you have to preach some uncomfortable texts. You have to preach some uncomfortable uncomfortable subjects. Listen, the lesson that God wants them to get is I see three lessons here through this. And I'm sure there are many more. But just in this this passage, this this section, I want to give you three thoughts here. Look at verse 14 again. It says, Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people. What, What do you mean, so is this people? Well, unclean. They're unclean. And so is this nation before me, saith the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And that which they offer there is unclean. Listen, there was a sin at a root in their hearts, a certain sin. And it had spread. It was contagious. It had affected everything they touched. It had affected every decision they were making. And that's the first truth that I want to see here. God saw their sin. And the first lesson here is their standing before God was dependent on the priority they placed on his house. Meaning, they had looked at God's house and they'd grown complacent to it. They had neglected the house of God for so long that it had affected them in God's eyes in the same way like they had touched a dead body. 
Their view of God's house, their sin of neglecting His house and having the wrong priorities was like a dead corpse sitting in their living room and on their couch at home infecting every part of their lives. They had a view of God's house like it wasn't important, like it wasn't a priority. And because of that sin, it affected everything else they did. Everything they touched was unclean before God because they didn't make His house a priority. Every offering they brought was unholy before God because they didn't make His house a priority. Look at the the effects down in verse 17. Look what He did as a result of their sin. It says, I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands, yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. Folks, for 15 years or so, the foundation of God's house had sat neglected and God saw it the whole time and it affected the people of God in God's eyes because they did not deal with their sin. Listen, God is more interested in holy people than he is in impressive buildings. I want to say that again. God is more interested in, in holy people than he is impressive buildings. And he was looking at these people and they were saying the right things and, and they were even acting like they were, you know, getting, they were, they were invested in God's work and they'd even worked on the foundation. But God looked at him and said, yes, they, they're working, but their hearts are not there. They're, they're not doing what they ought to do. God's house is not a big part of their lives. And The neglected temple had sat in disrepair for 15 years, but that wasn't their biggest problem. Their biggest problem was the fact that they didn't care that it was neglected. They didn't look at it as being a priority. They didn't look at it as being important. And now that they'd finished the foundation, they're maybe thinking, here's what they're thinking. Okay, now God, you're going to be pleased with us. Look at the foundation. It looks pretty good. But listen, progress on a building, on a beautiful building, is not God's top priority. He's not first looking at the shell of a building. He's looking at the hearts of the people inside the building. And that's why he said in verse 14, this people, this nation, every work of their hands and what they offer is unclean. Because their hearts aren't right, everything they touch isn't right. And as long as they had other priorities over God's house, they were in sin. And that default position was unholy. And God uses Haggai to help him understand there's more to worship than a building. Should the building be nice? Yeah, should it be taken care of? Yeah, but a beautiful building full of unholy people can't possibly please God. Lesson one would be then that, uh, that their standing before God was dependent on the priority they placed on their house, on his house. But lesson two would be God's more interested in qualified followers than quality buildings. He's more interested in qualified followers than he is quality buildings. I mean, think, we have a beautiful building. I mean, sometimes I walk in here, I don't even turn the, I don't turn the lights on, the sun's shining through the, the glass, and I can just, I mean, I just kind of stand in here like, what in the world? This thing is beautiful. I mean, it's just incredible that God will allow us to meet in a building like this. It's a building, in my opinion, that represents the God, kind of God we worship and serve. A building that represents God should look like this. And I know it's not perfect. We've got some work to do, and we've got some repairs to make, and we're always trying to improve it. We need to work on our roof. If you got some money to replace that for us in the next couple of weeks, we'll take it. You know, I mean, we've got some improvements to make. But according to this passage, we can't let those things be neglected. 
As soon as we neglect God's house, it affects our standing with him. But the bigger lesson is this, that this beautiful building will never be more important to God than people that have a heart for holiness. He's much more interested in qualified people than quality buildings. And I wonder if he looks at Eastside Baptist Church, if he sees a beautiful building or if he sees qualified people. I want him to see both. I want him to look not just at the building. I want, to look in, I want him to look inside the temples that we carry in our bodies, these, these physical bodies, and look inside this heart of mine. And I don't want him to say, well, it's good on the outside, but it's pretty rotten on the inside. And folks, God will only bless, according to this passage, he will only bless our church as long as the people of our church are striving for holiness. Honestly, I, would, I mean, I, if we had a, a building falling down full of holy people, that would please God more than a pretty building and nobody really in their hearts is striving to be holy like God. We limit our work, that God's work in us, if we don't strive for holiness. So here's, here's one more lesson to learn in all this. Our attention to God's house is a reflection of holiness. The attention that we give to God in this house is a reflection of holiness. Listen, this is true both in how we care for God's house physically. Listen, and I'm thankful for the men of our church that put effort and time and investment during the week to come up and work on the building on stuff. I'm thankful that randomly Mike Steen, uh, he'll, he'll make me jump out of my skin walking around the corner around the church here because I didn't know he's here doing something. Or Brother Charles Waltz, just randomly showing up during the week and he's painting something or, or I mean, just, it's a blessing. You know, it, our investment, our desire for investment in God's house reflects our personal holiness, according to this passage. In not just the physical building, but the priority we make God's house in our lives. And you say, I'm striving to be holy. I'm, ho- I'm doing my best. I want to be holy, and I want to live right and be right. But according to this passage, your level of holiness is revealed in how you care for God's house and how much of a, a priority you make God's house. Our commitment to God's house is a measure of our holiness. We can say we're holy all we want to, but it will show up in our commitment and investment in God's house. A person that neglects the house of God indicates their level of holiness. And now listen, I understand today things look different right now. Things are not the same. This is not aimed at those who aren't able to attend uh, or aren't comfortable returning to services. I understand. This is a mindset, folks. And the Jews had left God's house in disrepair for a long time. They neglected God's house. They didn't look at it as a priority. But we have to be careful because things are starting to stretch out a little bit. And it's starting to get longer and we're starting to be more delayed in the times that we're at church. And I'm thankful that we can be in services more, um, but there are some that can't. We have to be careful, though, that our mindset doesn't get to the place where the further we are removed from it, the less of a priority it becomes. And frankly, for about two months as a pastor of Eastside Baptist Church, I was worried about, for, about that for us. I was worried that the longer that we took in our homes... And not being here, that when it was time to come back, that people would be like, well, it's more convenient. Or they're, more, or they're complacent toward God's house. And I'm telling you to look around and see this today. It brings joy to my heart. I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that for the vast majority of Eastsiders, 
You didn't use that two-month window to grow complacent toward God's house or to look at it like an inconvenience anymore. I'm grateful, but we have to still be careful of it. Because in a couple of weeks, we'll be used to meeting together again. And where are you going to be on a Wednesday night? Right now, it's exciting, and now it's, it's fun, and we got our first service tonight. Sunday night, where, I mean, it's great, but in a couple of weeks, are you going to be here still? I'm just telling you, it's easy to fall into the trap. I'm not even saying anything against somebody in this room. I'm saying it's human nature to neglect the house of God. It is. Because unholiness is contagious. And unholiness will convince us the house of God isn't that important. Here's the mindset I want you to leave with. When God's people minimize the priority of his house, it affects their standing with God and reflects their holiness toward God. When we minimize the priority of this house, it affects our standing with God and it reflects our holiness toward God. No matter the season, no matter the circumstances, God's house always matters. Holy people make sure it does. In their worship. We sat here and we sang... um, wonderful grace of Jesus. How great thou art. I'm telling you, if I had wings, I would have hit my head on the ceiling. Because emotionally, I mean, it was awesome. And I'm I'm thankful for your willingness to be engaged. But listen, in two months, when we're used to meeting together again, are you you still going to be that excited? Because it's a reflection of our holiness if we let our complacency toward God's house grow. I'm thankful that, in our, that, we, that the house of God matters in our service. I'm thankful we have a lot of people that serve here at Eastside. But in two months, when the excitement wears off, are you still going to be in your place? We've got places, of, we've got areas that need to be addressed. We've got places that need to be, ser- you know, places of service. We need somebody to step up and do it. And I just wonder if that two-month window where there wasn't much responsibility on us, that it affect our commitment to serving in God's house. Does it, will it affect our giving? Will it affect our singing? Will it, will it affect our fellowship? I don't know. But our involvement here should never be approached as a matter of convenience or, or reviewed with a level of complacency. This is God's house, and it always matters. Holy people know that. If we minimize the priority of his house, it will affect our standing before God, and it will reveal our holiness. So I close today with these questions. If our standing with God is dependent on the priority we place on this house, where do you stand with God? What's your, is God's house a priority in your life? I mean, and, I'm, and I ask this question a lot, and I know you probably get tired of it, but um, disciples come to three services a week. Your attendance is a re- re- revealer of your, the priority you place on God's house. So how much do you allow to come between your commitment to God's house? And I'm not even talking about coronavirus. I'm not talking about those that can't attend yet at all. I'm dealing with a mindset that we have to deal with, especially at this time. So how engaged are you in worship? I wonder sometimes when I look out and I see people that don't sing. I just wonder. You say, well, I can't sing. I get that. But make a joyful noise. You're not going to offend anybody. Get involved. 
It's a revealer of our personal holiness. Our commitment to God's house is, how are you at serving? Do you have a place that you serve every week? How, how faithful are you at giving? Those things are revealers of our holiness because holy people commit to God's house. Our standing with God is affected by how we prioritize this place. Number two, another question is, are we concerned with personal holiness? Because we can say all we want, we're Eastside Baptist Church and we've got things going, but in front of our hearts, we don't have holiness before God. I don't know that he, we're people he could use. If, if we're on a scale of, of old life and new life, holy life, which one does your life most closely resemble? Where are you on the scale from, from the old life and the new life? Are you over here somewhere? Because holiness should be the primary mark of God's people. It's not about programs, and it's not about shine, and it's not about articulate, or being articulate. It's not about being good at music and, and having everything in order. No, holiness should be our primary desire. Holiness should be our primary marker. And I know it's not popular sub, a popular subject in our culture, but it is, to me, the most de- important defining characteristic of a child of God. How much attention do you give to personal holiness? Is there some area in your life that doesn't reflect God's holiness? Is there an area of your life that's way more over on that side than it is on that side? Unholiness is contagious. Unholiness is our default. Every human being has the tendency, but it's a matter of obedience. Holiness is a choice we make. You don't stumble onto it passively. It may be time for Eastside Baptist Church to not just think, wow, we have a beautiful building, but think, you know what? I want to be a qualified person. I want to be a holy person before God. Third, what does your attention to God's house say about your holiness? Because we can say we're holy all we want, but a clear marker of holiness is connected to how we prioritize God's house. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, during the week, do you have something that you're investing in? Listen, our involvement and attention to this church family is a revealer of our desire for holiness. We live in a culture, and you say, well, no, this is really heavy. No, we live in a culture that constantly minimizes the importance of God's house. We live in a culture, and they don't care anything about God. And so his house, they want to take that, they want to take that away. They think it's unimportant. They think it's silly. They think it's fruitless. They don't think it's helpful at all. Listen, as unholiness spreads, contempt for God's house is just going to increase. And that means there's never been a more important time for God's people like us to commit to a local church. We have just come through a time where more Christians than ever have experienced separation from God's house. Now it's time to come back. Are we going to continue being faithful or are we going to fall away? Are we going to increase in our service or are we going to pull back? Will we engage in reaching others or become isolated? Will we be more or less committed than we were before? Folks, your mindset toward God's house is not a matter of habit. It's a matter of holiness. Your mindset toward this place is not a matter of habit. It's a matter of holiness. So what does your heart say um, about your holiness? Uh, it, depending on your actions. What does your heart toward God's house say about your level of holiness? 
Your heart for God's house affects your standing with God, and it reflects your holiness in the eyes of God. And until the kids are getting a little bit anxious here, we'll wrap it up. God help us to be people that treat his house, this church family, with the kind of love and respect and commitment that pleases him. Let's, let's stand together. Let's pray. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.